Welcome to Blockspaces Live, the podcast where we help real people solve real-world problems with blockchain and Web3. All our episodes are recorded live, which means you're welcome to attend yourself, to ask questions, and be a part of our community. To get your invite, head to blockspaces.com slash podcast and hit subscribe. In this episode, we'll talk with Sasha Hodder, the founder of Hodder Law, where she helps clients navigate the ever-changing landscape of cryptocurrency regulations. Keep listening to find out what regulations you might need to be mindful of if your business is considering using blockchain, why regulators treat Bitcoin as a different type of asset class compared to other cryptocurrencies, and the implications that central bank digital currencies might have on the way money is regulated. Okay, let's dive right in. Yeah, yeah, of course. Before we dive in, anything you want to add about your background or what you're working on right now? Oh, uh, you know, I guess uh, lately the the main thing I've been working on is is Title Thirty One audits. A lot of my clients are Bitcoin ATM operators, and we've just mm-hmm. seen almost everyone getting these these very invasive audits. So uh, it's, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's and the. Well, I'm sure we'll get into it, you know, all the different regulations that impact these these people operating in the space. But uh, it's just uh, they, they seem to be asking more and more questions each year, like, mm-hmm. a, you know, kind of shifting the goalposts. So it's been a, a bit of a frustrating um, month dealing with these audits. Yeah. yeah, it sounds like it. Maybe we'll get into that a little bit more today. But um, just a reminder, if you're here with us live today, feel free to ask questions as we go for Sasha. Um, just drop them in the Q&A at the bottom of your screen, and we'll uh, get through those as we go. So with that in mind, Sasha, just to, to start us off, can you um, can you give us a, kind of the lay of the land? Like what, what developments in crypto regulation are you paying attention to right now? Sure. Yeah. I mean, 2022 was, I think it was the highest year for regulatory enforcement actions like we saw more coming from the sec the cftc you know uh we had the ofac the ofac case against tornado cash was novel where ofac was sanctioning code itself um and then you know the whole sbf implosion of ftx and all the different bankruptcies so it was just a a really, you know, interesting year for to be in the space as as a lawyer, but not so much fun if you're an investor in any of those lending platforms. Um, so, so yeah, I think like some of the some of the new aspects that are coming out. You know, for years we didn't see the CFTC showing up too much, and then all of a sudden with the Uki Dow case, they they kind of pierced the veil of a Dow, saying that it's an unincorporated association. So I think that's kind of one of the, you know, regulatory angles that we need to watch the most carefully for 2023 is what's going to happen with these DAOs. Like one of the things that they're saying is that people who were voting the tokens were are liable for the decisions of the DAO and people that own the tokens get the economic benefit of the tokens but didn't take the time to vote those people look like they'll be shielded from it so it's it's just i think there's a lot of kinks to work out in that you know through that case and there's it's really interesting the lex lex punk army or the, the they're putting some motions forward to to stand up for dow so uh, i'm excited to see that that one unfold and uh you know everyone's anticipating the ripple decision coming this year in 2023 uh 
We saw a bad precedent come from the library case uh, in that litigation with the SEC last year. So, uh, you know, two companies got fined over 100 million, Coinbase and uh, BlockFi. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's coming at all fronts. Um, for, yeah. for people who aren't familiar, uh, could you give like a, a TLDR of the Ripple situation? Uh, it's a kind of a big, it's kind of a big ongoing thing. Yeah. So the Ripple case, um, you know, there's been over 730 filings so far and Ripple says it's spent over a hundred million defending itself. So it's, it's been, you know, quite a lot of back and forth over the years. Um, right now, both, both the SEC and Ripple have a motion for summary judgment pending. So, uh, it's possible we could get a decision in the coming months if if the judge decides there's no dispute on the facts or or it could keep going to a trial. So that's kind of what we're looking at now. And, you know, from, from the library case, the SEC won and it was said that people that got those library tokens had a reasonable expectation of profit. And I kind of think the same conclusion is going to come with the Ripple case, even though those tokens, the Ripple tokens, were sold before the SEC put any kind of notice out that tokens were securities. Like in 2017, after the Ethereum sale, they put out a notice mm-hmm. saying that the DAO tokens were securities. But Ripple sold those tokens, their tokens, before that notice. But mm-hmm. you know, the underlying law has been in place since 1946 with the Howey test. So the judge you know, I think is going to say, well, Ripple made certain and and Ripple argues vehemently that they never told anyone that that people could expect profit from buying the the XRP tokens. But I mean, what's the logical reason? Why would you buy those if you don't expect them to go up in value? They don't have as (laughs) the Ripple army will, uh, you know, uh, jump all over and say, oh, there's all kinds of great (laughs) use cases for those. But, uh, you know, uh, ultimately, if if they bought them with the expectation of profit, they paid money for them, it's going to meet the Howey test standard. Mm -hmm. So if that happens too, you know, it can send a big reverberation through the whole market because, you know, Ethereum itself has always been kind of granted this exemption. There was the Hinman speech back in 2018, where Director Hinman gave several factors saying something can be sufficiently decentralized, uh, like maybe it's a security when it's sold, and then over time it it takes on different qualities and becomes decentralized and is no longer a security. Well, if Ripple is a security and loses, I think it's going to open the door that Ethereum, you know, that that it would have to be looked at as a security too um, for any kind of uniformity. So uh, I, I certainly hope Ripple wins on that, but I'm not hopeful that like I don't I don't I expect the SEC will will end up prevailing there. So so basically anyone launching tokens in the US um you know they better not sell them and do them as an airdrop instead but even then there there's certain things the SEC like that's kind of library tokens they weren't all sold like they a lot of them were distributed fairly but there was 500,000 worth of them that were sold to accredited investors originally but then they renegotiated that contract and instead of selling equity or you know it was a promissory note or something they 
they re redid that agreement so that they pay, they sold them tokens. So if they hadn't done that, they might not have lost. But um, basically, it's it, it's hard to do token offerings in the U.S. Um, that's for sure. Yeah. You mentioned the Okidao earlier, and I want to make sure you unpack that one as well, um, because not only was it uh, you know a new precedent for you know, how participation in a, in a DAO or ownership of a token can, um, have some legal, legal ramifications for you. But, um, it's, it's the kind of thing that I, I think if you're thinking about starting a blockchain project, whether it's as an individual or whether you're a business who's looking into blockchain, using it directly, it starts to raise questions of, of if I'm using cryptocurrency, is there some sort of liability that I might face or some sort of, you know, regulation uh, or legal action. And um, if, if if someone's listening and maybe they're not familiar with how a DAO works or what exactly was going on with the, the Oki DAO case and why that was new, can you walk us through that? And then can you help us understand if I'm like, what does this mean for people in the crypto space and, and things that might affect them from that, again, like legal or, uh, you know, regulatory perspective? Yeah. So, so basically the CFTC filed a complaint um, against the founders, so Tom Bean and Kyle Kistner, and they were fined $250,000 for failing to register with the CFTC. Mm -hmm. There weren't any allegations of fraud in that case. The only thing they did was fail to register. But, you know, what I think they really did wrong was they poked the bear. They So they had a centralized platform and then they they decentralized it like they said okay we're switching this into a DAO and they made a lot of comments at that time that becoming a DAO made them enforcement proof they didn't have to collect KYC none of the rules applied because it was a DAO and i think by saying those kind of things they were mm -hmm. just like you know egging on the regulator yeah. and the regulator said oh yeah you want to bet <laughs> uh we can certainly yeah. <laughs> enforce against you you're selling these to americans and uh you know any any business that's not registered with the CFTC and is offering um, you know, futures trading or derivatives, they're, they're supposed to register as a commodities, um, a futures merchant. And with that comes certain um, anti-money laundering requirements. You have to know who the customer is, and it's certainly not a KYC-less process. And, you know, it's certainly speculative, but I... I wonder if if they hadn't been so uh, you know forward saying oh we're not doing any KYC if if they would have drawn the attention of the regulator the way it has um, and and the service on this was a really interesting thing so so the CFTC filed the or like sent them their papers they, they didn't know how to serve a DAO because you know there's no registered corporation for it and no mm -hmm. no re no place to send a lawsuit uh and usually when you serve a lawsuit it it has to go through quite a quite a rigorous process to make sure someone signs for it and agrees that they've accepted the the papers but in this case they did it in the telegram chat <laughs> they went in and said here's your lawsuit and no one you know no one responded and they said well over 100 people saw this why didn't anyone respond but it's like who's going to take responsibility for that and say oh you know you served us and then, you know, so there was a whole, a whole back and forth and ultimately it, it, it was, they deemed that it was served on them. Um, so, 
Yeah, it's a, it makes it difficult. I think that that case, like it, it means even with the existing regulations that it, mm-hmm. that we have, like right now, the CFTC, there's a little bit of a turf war between the SEC and the CFTC of who's going to regulate crypto. SBF um, had sponsored this DCCPA bill, and mm-hmm. that was going to give the CFTC heightened authority to regulate the not only the futures settled crypto market, but also the spot market. And this case with the UKIDAO kind of showed that they don't need any additional regulation. They think that with the regulation that exists, they can actually attach jurisdiction to to any of these DAOs that are doing any kind of futures um, or margin trading mm-hmm. derivatives, those kind of offerings. Um, and you had mentioned that members of the DAO were subject to some scrutiny as well. Can you can you walk us through that in a little bit more detail? Yeah. So in in the complaint against the DAO, it was saying that anyone that voted their tokens was a member of this unincorporated association. So without like when when a when a company is a corporation or an LLC, they have limited liabilities so that individuals personally can't their assets can't be at, attacked even if the company is charged unless there's some kind of piercing of the corporate veil through fraud or or you know a few mm-hmm. other scenarios but if a company is not registered then it just becomes an unincorporated group of people and those people are subject to liability they're joint and severally liable so that's mm-hmm. how the the CFTC is looking at this that each person who voted token but you know where there's no KYC how do they really know who voted the token. And there's been a few filings since the original complaint that I haven't actually fully read. I've just kind of skimmed the headlines on them. And it looks, what I remember on it is that the judge said that they should go after the the founders, not each person, like not each. I don't think anything's fully been decided. It's still in active litigation, but uh, there was some kind of comment from the judge saying, well, that that that's a little bit of an overreach to say that anyone who voted tokens would be jointly and severally liable. Um, but it turns out they've already gone after the fa- founders in the in another action when they the CFTC also sued B0 LLC, which was the 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 company before it decentralized into the DAO. So I don't think there's double jeopardy that exists. You know, in criminal law, you can't get charged for the same thing twice, but in civil law, I think you can. So these mm-hmm. two guys, they might end up liable a second time for the DAO. Oh, no. um, or at least that's the direction it's looking, which, you know, I hope for their sake, that's not what ends up happening, but the joys of uncharted territory. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Never a dull moment in crypto. <laughs> right. Does it, has that changed like how you think about, and when you talk to, to clients as well, like what kind of projects that they should stay away from, or maybe what types of protocols or cryptocurrencies they may want to look at that are, you know, nothing's for certain, but maybe things that are less likely to, to, trigger some red flags or get in this type of situation? Yeah, I think a lot of the, like, it's difficult right now because, you know, we have all this technology that allows us to interact on a peer-to-peer basis that doesn't require intermediaries. And all the existing regulation only contemplates 
using intermediaries. So it's just, um, it's a little bit of a crossroads. And for a long time, people thought, okay, well, if you become, you know, sufficiently decentralized, you, you bypass some of this regulation. But I think the government still has the power to attack, attach jurisdiction to almost anything happening in the U.S. So um, it, it, unfortunately, you know, they people might just want to completely block this country if they're doing that type of activity and only make it available to countries that don't have, you know, as as aggressive of regulators. And then, you know, what ultimately happens is U.S. people that are sophisticated enough can still access through through VPNs, even though the company, you know, could get in trouble if they if they let some U.S. person access it through a VPN. There's not a whole lot of ways to stop that in certain situations, too. So um, I think that's kind of one workaround. Yeah. And and it it touches on an interesting concept too of how how vastly different regulations are in between from country to country. Um, could we pivot? Could I ask you a little bit about like how do how do regulations in major ways like uh, vary from country to country? Well, um, it's starting to get more similar across all the countries, but for a long time, many countries, like especially in Europe, they didn't have any regulations on the books for for crypto activities. So it was kind of mm-hmm. a free-for-all or they had nicer regulations that were more defined. Like in Europe, a security is just something that pays a dividend. It's very clear. Mm-hmm. They don't have this right. whole Howey test where it's, you know, on a case-by-case basis. So a token could launch in in Europe, uh, and there's the Finma, the Swiss regulatory authority. They came out, I believe it was in 2018, and gave a really nice framework for what is a security token, what's a payment token, and I think they had one called the maybe the payment token was the utility token. But if something was used for a purpose of like buying a good or service. It wasn't a security. It wasn't subject to securities laws. And it just made things a lot more streamlined. And and even just telling people what the rules are versus this this arbitrary Howey test and then the decentralized, you know, f- the sufficiently decentralized factors that came out from the US after the Hinman speech made it so that people thought, you know, oh, if we if we make and there there were a few um no action letters from the SEC also that described scenarios where tokens would not be considered securities they make for a very boring token <laughs> but but you know there is uh, there was a framework laid out but then we have Gary Gensler come in and just saying you know everything's a security so it just makes it hard but uh I digress. You asked about other countries, not the U.S. on this one. Um, there was recently the Mika uh, legislation in Europe, so uh, I think it's I think it's a good bill. It, it's 400 pages long, mm-hmm. so it's got, got a lot in it. But the main things that it focuses on are centralized exchanges, and so those centralized exchanges will have certain duties like to KYC people, uh, you know, to know who the customer is and collect the identity to avoid anti-money laundering. Um, But it doesn't require any kind of pre 
registration. Like it's, it's kind of more akin to our current FinCEN rules in the U S where you, you submit a form, but you don't have to request approval like you do from the sec um, standpoint. So, so I think it's a more business friendly um, rule than that. And I think it will be a a good thing generally. Um, And then Canada also has had quite a bit of action on the regulatory front with their Ontario Securities Commission. They've mm-hmm. actually approved an ETF up there, and I think it's having, um, you know, pretty good trading volume and, uh, you know, probably still pretty volatile on the prices, but uh, it's they've given um, a bit more stringent of regulations, but it's actually led to a solid footing for the businesses that can jump through those hoops. Um, right. So. As you mentioned, it's it's a definition of what the rules are, and that in a lot of ways makes it easier, even if the rules are strict. Knowing exactly. just what the rules are makes it, yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, something so basic, but you know, the, it's pretty important that people understand right. what what's required of them to to operate in the you know not be in the shadows. Yeah, right, makes sense. We have a question dovetailing with that, actually, from Austin Shores in the chat. Um, Do you see regulation in the U.S. stabilizing anytime soon, or will it continue to get more and more invasive as crypto expands? What's your opinion on that? Uh, You know, I think it's going to get more and more invasive. I... I think it's going to be kind of draconian in the coming years. I hope not. I hope I'm wrong. Like, you know, ideally we'd just get some kind of new regulator or authority would be given to the SEC or the CFTC and they'd just make some new rules that kind of maybe take Coinbase as a model example and what it say, okay, how Coinbase is doing things or how everyone should do it. We want you know, crypto assets and Kraken too, I think have been, you know, a good, a good player. Mm -hmm. Um, But say, you know, they have to be segregated. The accounts need to be segregated. It's not some Mm -hmm. slush fund like we saw on what's happening on FTX or all the lending platforms and have them be audited, have them follow gap, you know, style accounting, um, you know, let investors understand the risks that they're taking, but let retail investors make that decision for themselves. And, uh, you know, away we go. <laughs> but uh, in, uh, instead, I think it's going to end up going to the CFTC. And they have companies like BlackRock and, uh, you know, other other big banks, JP Morgan, and they're all on an advisory committee right now. And everyone wants to be you know, figure out the regulation for crypto. And my big fear is that they're going to put such stringent requirements on it that people coming from self-custody. So now, and especially I see this in the BTM world, the Bitcoin ATM world with banks, they expect you to rate every single wallet with some kind of score of, uh, you know, there's cipher trace, chain analysis, um, right. all kinds of these companies have emerged. And, the, you know, when, we, when we're dealing in cash, if you take a dollar bill from someone, you don't need to know what that cash did in the past. But with crypto, it's it's become very much like if if that cash was associated with a, a, a just even a self custody wallet gives it a lower score than if it's associated with a Coinbase wallet, and they can distinguish mm-hmm. those differences. Um, and if a wallet is new, like if it's absolutely fresh, it's it's considered risky because there's no history on it. You don't know who owns it. 
And like, that's to me, the, the opposite of what crypto was even created for. Like it shouldn't have to have these scores. So if, if we really go down that path, then, you know, it might make it to a situation where you can't hold it in your own wallet. That's like my biggest fear for, for where we're going with these regulations. If the CFTC or the SEC say, okay, something's too risky. If it's held, you know, off an exchange platform, then no one can trade it. The fungibility is lost. Um, so, and, and, you know, if they're going to roll out a CBDC, which the FedNow project has, you know, published on their website that they're planning to, to roll out some kind of test pilot CBDC this summer in January or of July of 23, you know, the worst application of that would be like a Chinese social credit score kind of system that you can't exit out of. You'd have, and Bitcoin would be the antithesis of that. So, uh, you know, that's how they could implement a CBDC and some kind of identity token that's, you know, linked to all of your, it's like linked to the government, linked to your bank, linked to everything. So there's just no way of hiding anything you're doing. And some people say, you know, like, why do you need to hide? But it's like, you know, privacy is kind of a an important thing that that we have right now that could be, you know, severely eroded in if we go to this kind of draconian type regulatory system. So, um, <laughs> how, how how ironic is it that like cash, which is basically untraceable, gets uh, like zero scrutiny put on it, but cryptocurrency that it's a public blockchain where anyone can see the transactions now all of a sudden you have to <laughs> now you have to put a, now you have to jump through hoops to to prove where the where everything came from right yeah it's, just, it's so back it's backwards mm-hmm. and for, and for with, someone who's with, just real quick sasha for someone who's listening uh cbdc just can you give us that definition and so we understand what, what you're getting at, at there Sure. Yeah. It's so it's a central bank digital currency. It was rolled out in China a couple years ago, and it's like pretty much every country around the world that's connected to the UN is is rolling out their own CBDCs. Um, I don't know how successful they'll be. Like it, if you look at the U.S., like remember trying to launch that Obamacare website, the government mm-hmm. really made a mess of it. And, you know, rolling out something like a federal digital currency that's backed by the Federal Reserve um, is going to be a lot harder than putting out a healthcare website. So I don't know, you know, some people say, oh, they have the smartest, most technical people working on it. It won't be any problem for them. But as we've seen in the, um, you know, DeFi space, there's a lot of exploits can happen and hackers are very advanced. So (laughs) I don't know, you know, I don't know if it'll be safe or, um, you know, what kind of, what kind of technology they're going to use for it. Uh, some people say it will actually be Ripple coin and um, other people say it'll be a JP Morgan coin, but who who knows, but it, it would basically be some kind of coin that's linked to the Federal Reserve or backed mm-hmm. by the Federal Reserve. And I think where where it could be effective is in giving welfare type payments. Um, you know, they would know exactly who's getting it and, you know, it would all be linked to your identity to to make the payments so um you know or universal basic income things like that sure. and and i think rolling it out that way would you know who's going to 
say, oh, I don't want any free money. I'm not signing up for this CBDC because, you know, I'm concerned about my privacy. It's probably a very small fraction of the population that would would mm-hmm. say that. Most people will say, oh, give me the thousand bucks a month, please. Um, here, you right. know, here's here's here, here here's mm-hmm. my soul. <laughs> but uh, but once we could get onto a system like that, uh, you know, it might eliminate cash and it, it would just make it it's completely programmable money. So I mean, the way it's happening in China, if that's, you know, any example is if someone's if they know, they know who's if if you play too much video games, the Chinese government doesn't think that's a productive use of your time. They will um, make it so that you can't go on a certain bus or, you know, with the carbon and the environmental concerns that are that are coming up. They could say, oh, we see you bought three steak dinners this week already you can't have a fourth steak. Sorry. That's just, you know, too much carbon consumed yeah. by you. Or, you know, if you tweet something that they don't like, they could maybe even go, I saw something come from Facebook or sorry, from a uh, PayPal a few months ago saying that they were going to fine people $3,500 if they, the gist of it was if you tweet something or, you know, say something yeah. that they don't like, they can f- pull money right out of your PayPal account. Mm-hmm. Well, it would be the, very easy with a programmable money or collecting mm-hmm. taxes. So in some senses, it, you know, maybe it would be more efficient to have this programmable money if if they want to do a If the government wants to do some kind of stimulus to 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 really, you know, invigorate the economy and get people to spend, they could make the money so that it only works for in the next month. If you don't spend mm-hmm. it, you lose it. So it discourages savings. Um, but so it sounds just... like there's a lot of power that could come with it, but that a lot of that could be used for, you know, in different ways, right? Good ways, bad mm-hmm. ways. Uh, all yeah. Sorts of different things, right? Yeah. It yeah. could ultimately be like, you know, setting up, it could be really evil. Um, so I, I certainly don't want us to go that way, but, uh, sure. but we'll see. It looks like it's, it's coming anyway, or we'll, it'll be a, a, for, a main topic in the coming, you know, five years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, um, this is probably a good pivot to, since we're talking about CBDC, let's like, go into a couple other corners of the crypto universe and maybe you can unpack how regulation is affecting or not affecting them. So specifically stable coins and then Bitcoin, Mm -hmm. which, you know, in other episodes, we've talked about how that's categorically different from other cryptocurrencies. So from a regulatory perspective, can you walk us through through those two pockets and what's on your mind there? Sure. Yeah. I'm a huge Bitcoin, um, you know, fan, obviously like what, you know, what I think everyone Everyone in this space is, or mo- you know, whatever. <laughs> Most of the block spaces people, I think, are, um, you know. But uh, in the Lightning Network, and uh, you know, I really oh, yeah. hope that 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 succeeds over Same. over the long run. Um, what's unique about Bitcoin is that you can hold it yourself, like you. And there's a software exemption from a regulatory perspective that really lets, like, holding Bitcoin on a Trezor or ledger wallet or you know exodus wallet or blocks stream green wallet um blue wallet like any any of these self-custody wallets they're not really impacted by the existing regulations so right now we have i think you know there's like 58 regulators that affect a centralized wallet that's that's holding someone's bitcoin that would be um you know you have the sec 
well, they're not, they don't regulate Bitcoin because Bitcoin's a commodity. But mm-hmm. if Bitcoin is sold like with, uh, like there was a case in 2014, the Trevon Shavers case where Bitcoin was sold as an investment contract. Like it was mm-hmm. basically some kind of lending situation where you get your Bitcoin and then you get some interest on it. Well, that created a security interest. So then you have the SEC. The CFTC, if it's settling in futures, um, the FinCEN though is the is a big one where they they require so FinCEN is a Department of Treasury like arm and they're the ones that require the KYC information and they're the ones that I they're the main regulator that I interact with with most of my clients so you have to have an anti money laundering policy set up mm-hmm. set up. And you have to file suspicious activity reports if something suspicious happens with the transaction. You have to file currency transaction reports if there's been more than 10,000 cash transacted. Bitcoin itself, you don't need a currency transaction report only if you're taking cash in exchange for it. If you're sending a wire in exchange for it, you wouldn't have to do a CTR today. Um, But if you, you have to comply with the travel rule if it's over... Um, $3,000, you have to, if, if it's going to an exchange, you have to send the KYC information that you've collected to that exchange, um, mm-hmm. including the person's social security number. So there's all kinds of, you know, things that are annoying for, for most Bitcoiners who, who don't like KYC. But if right. you're, if you're holding Bitcoin on a ledger and you want to send it to your friend who also has a ledger, None of that applies um, if, if you're not doing it in the capacity of being in the business of selling Bitcoin to your friend. Um, so so that's the nice thing about Bitcoin, I think. And that's what is ultimately probably going to make Bitcoin win, even if the government does try and do some kind of draconian CBDCs. Well, this network is global. It's already been distributed for the last 10 years. People have it on their treasures. So they don't need to interact on these centralized platforms. And any company that will accept Bitcoin like through a lightning transaction or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, point if they can have lightning set up through their point of sale, well, then people won't need to use these CBDCs if they have Bitcoin. As long as the government doesn't say, hey, it's illegal to accept Bitcoin for a right. good or service or yeah. something like that, which, you know, no government is, has indicated any anything like that at this stage. So um, so I think that's what's exciting and, and powerful about Bitcoin is that it doesn't need all these complicated regulations going on. They really don't impact Bitcoin today um, if you're holding it the way you should, you know, in, in your self-custodied wallet. Uh, stable coins, on the other hand, uh, they, I think they're where the regulatory agencies should be focused because so as we move to this digital world, um, right now the U S has a big geopolitical advantage with the U S dollar being what, you know, is the most trusted settlement currency. But if, oh, shoot, my laptop's about to die. Sorry. (laughs) Let me just get the, (laughs) sorry about that. Um, (laughs) But uh, so with stable coins, and we saw this from the Libra, the Facebook stable coin Libra that that was looking to come out a few years ago, 
So it was going to be backed not just by the U.S. dollar, but by a basket of various different currencies, like including the Chinese yen. Um, I think it had some gold, some silver, like it was just a mix of different things backing it, which is a really interesting way to do it. But it, the U.S. regulators jumped all over that really quickly saying, hey, this could give China more power than it has today. Um, you know, whoever, who, whatever country has the biggest stable coin, and if it's not backed by the U.S. dollar, you know, people, people uh, like governments will start using these stable coins and, you know, say it becomes backed by oil or say the, the OFAC sanctioned regions um, all get together and say, we're going to use our own stable coin that's backed by a mix of our currencies like Iran, Syria, you know, mm. China, North Korea, China is not an OFAC sanctioned country, but it, you know, China and Russia could get it together in there and, and they could make something that, you know, really um, challenges the US dollar in a negative way. So I think the government needs to be mm. very careful on how they regulate the stablecoin and just encourage the heck out of that so that they keep their foothold and no one is incentivized to move into a different stablecoin scheme. Right now, the, the SEC has indicated that they could regulate certain stablecoins as securities. So I think the first discussion of how stablecoins were going to be regulated came out in 2020 um, by the SEC, where they kind of divided stablecoins into three different buckets. One bucket would be the ones backed by cash, um, your USDC, USDT, mm. um, those ones they said they don't think that those are securities. Then, excuse me, then there was the stable coins backed by, uh, as long as, sorry, <laughs> caveat to that, as long as they're one-to-one -one backed uh, one by, one backed, you know, okay. as long as they really have the reserves that they say they have, um, they shouldn't be securities. Also ones that are backed by real estate or gold, things like that, those also shouldn't be securities. And they're still looking at them in the Howey test framework that anyone that's buying a stable coin should not have an expectation that that is going to go up in value because it's right. supposed to be stable. So that's right. why it doesn't meet the definition of a security. But they did say the ones that are um, backed by like, uh, like the Terra Luna kind of ones. Mm -hmm. um, like algorithmic. Yeah, the algorithmic stable coins they've said could be could meet the definition of securities. I still think it would be a stretch, but um, that's kind of the guidance they've given us. And then we had uh, Congress put out a report on stable coins, and they actually pointed to they said it could either be regulated by the Howey test or the Revs test. And I think you know most people in the space are familiar with the Howey test investment of money into a common enterprise with the expectation of profit based on the effort of others. Um, the REVS test is for promissory notes. So it's a little bit broader where it says you look at the motivation of the buyer and the seller. You look at the plan of the distribution. You look at the reasonable expectation of the investing public and the risk reducing factors. So it just it gives the SEC a lot more room if you're working within the REVS test to almost say that anything financial could, could be, you know, a security, but it has to be a promissory note first. So they're saying if the stable coin, like the way the U S dollar is kind of a, 
a note like the government owes you the dollar for you know they're holding holding it in their reserve if that's how the stable coin is viewed then it would probably fall under that revs test but uh then <laughs> there was also a 2021 interagency report that said stable coin issuers could be subject to banking laws um like the mm-hmm. glass steagall act mm-hmm. which i kind of think that's where it makes the most sense to put them like just treat yeah. them like like money and um it it would or treat them like kind of like bank accounts too like you have to have some kind of insurance for them which right now has proved almost impossible to get fdic insurance for anything in the industry but you know it would be i think a nice thing for for depositors to to feel like they had that insurance protection and um, maybe if 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 they did regulate stable coins that way, they could get that insurance in place. Mm-hmm. Like just say, come on, FDIC, what you know, what does it take? What do we need to figure out here? I think one of the things that that has been stopping that is not having a safe or what they deem to be a safe custodian. But now Fidelity is custodying these things. Mm-hmm. I think Coinbase has Coinbase custody has proved pretty um, trustworthy so far. So. I think there's, you know, there are options for the custody and to get this insurance. Like we just need to kind of work together and get there. Um, and, but then uh, I don't know why it's been been so hard for these agencies to agree on on some kind of policy to put in place. Um, yeah, Drew, that kind of goes back to what you were mentioning earlier about um, the one of the biggest barriers is just murky waters around regulation right. and having those clarified actually allows you to move forward. But until that happens, you kind of have to uh, sit in kind of a holding pattern until things are clarified. Yeah. And yeah. with stable coins, it seems like that's especially important because like, you know, it's one thing if you ape a bunch of money into, into some coin and it goes to zero, like that happens. You, you always knew that was a possibility, but with stable coins, I truly feel bad for people who the stable coin collapses and they lose all their money. Cause that's not what's, that's not what's supposed to happen. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and so it's just, it's awful seeing stuff like that. Yeah. Agreed. And that's why I like it. So the stable coins, the higher regulatory burden to put, put mm-hmm. on them, I think it's, it's fine. Like they, they, they can right. deal with it. They should, you know, they, they should, should meet certain standards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, then the other area, the NFTs. <laughs> that, um, That's a yeah, whole walk, can of isn't it? Yeah. yeah walk us <laughs> through your, your take on those as well. That would be really helpful. Sure. Well, I'm married to the guy that made the first um, music NFT, uh, DJ Pepe. <laughs> uh, he, my, I met my husband in Telegram on this like Bitcoin farming chat, which is a counterparty uh game so counterparty like was one of the first protocols that was doing um you know art on top of the bitcoin blockchain and then then ethereum started doing the crypto punks and everything like that so it was uh i kind of have you know a real special part place in my heart for nfts and Mm. um i really hope they the regulatory framework doesn't you know make them considered securities or something like that because i you know i just think they're really fun and and mm-hmm. they shouldn't be considered securities they should be considered like baseball trading cards mm-hmm. and um you know just valued for the art now whether the sec agrees with that or not i think um 
you know, it's up for debate. They're still looking at it from the Howey test framework saying, you know, if someone's investing money and they expect the value of this to increase, it could be looked at as a security. Mm-hmm. But there's a um, case that came after the Howey case, the United States versus Foreman, uh, United States Housing Foundation versus Foreman. I believe it was in 1976. And it said anything that you can use and consume is outside the jurisdiction of a security. So that's why, mm-hmm. um, you know, they were talking about a house, like a house you you invest money in, you expect it to go up in value, but it's not regulated by the SEC. Same thing with, you know, very, you know, fine art or there's lots of examples, Beanie Babies. Um, you know, if you can hold something in your hand and... Well, that's not the great example for an NFT. You can't hold it in your hand, but if you can use it and consume it, which, you know, with an NFT, like you're looking at it and appreciating the artistic value, that's, I guess the, that, you know, that's the main argument that needs to be pushed forward is that these are different because they have a a different unique use case because they're, they're actual art versus, um, you know, just Mm -hmm. some speculative token that you can hope will go up in value. But let me put put one example to you because you said there are, and they, they can be, but they can be used for other things as well. I was, I was listening to um, a major um, coffee brand talk about this and they were talking about how you could take their loyalty program and like classic example, you know, you buy 10 coffees, you get one free, right? And that's Mm -hmm. like a punch card or it might be uh, tracked in an app, but you could also turn that into an NFT that you then redeem for that coffee, right? But then if it's an NFT, I can do things with it. I could sell it to you, right? It might be more worth more to you than it is to me. You could think about doing this for like airline miles or all sorts of other things. So what's your take? Does that get into like more of a speculation of, of maybe I think this thing is going to increase in value or I might want to hold on to it or sell it for more? What's your perspective there? Well, I, I think, again, we'd have to say the Foreman case makes those loyalty points clearly something that's got a use case. Like you can use and consume the loyalty point. You can trade it in mm-hmm. and get a coffee for it, or you can you know trade it in for a discount on your airline ticket. Um, so that's, that's what is very distinct about those compared to the traditional securities that, that don't have that option. Okay. Now- you know, where do those lines blur? Like, especially things like the the Constitution Dow project where, mm-hmm. you know, several people pooled their funds together to buy something that, you know, has the like a, a use case, but the act of pooling your investment together is exactly the type of activity that the Howey test was created for. Like originally the SEC said all these people were giving money to a farmer to tend these orange groves in Florida and the act of them pooling their money and letting some other person do the work for it. So if those people in the constitution, I don't want to target them because I, I, you know, I, I don't want anyone to get in trouble um, with the SEC, you know, but, but anyone that's like, you know, putting their work together so that one centralized or like a smaller group can do the effort of sourcing the, you know, the art or the, the crypt, the NFT hedge funds, those kind of things, they're, they're where there might be a little bit more room for the regulatory agencies to, to attach jurisdictions, but on the actual art themselves, um, I think for now, you know, hopefully it's going to remain, um, outside the, the securities 
conversation. Yeah, I think one of the uh, one of the other things we wanted to get to, because I know we're we're wrapping up here soon, but um, so pivoting to FTX, because we've we've mentioned that a few times, and 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 SBF, and just that whole fiasco, right? So, like in in your view, what what laws do you think, if they were in place, would have prevented something like that? Well, I think the existing laws if they were enforced properly actually would have prevented it because there was fraud there. There was, um, you know, he lied to investors. He said the funds were not mixed all together. And he said you had what you had in your account as your own balance. But then we've learned, you know, there was those numbers showing up on people's accounts was just fake numbers like the you know that not that money or tokens were never there they were never allocated to each person so um you know and he embezzled from the company essentially by buying all that real estate and things like that like buying his parents a vacation homes with customer deposits like that's just straight up theft and fraud so mm-hmm. our existing laws you know give I think all of them, like Caroline Ellison, the CEO of Alameda, and Gary mm-hmm. Wang, um, you know, one of SBF's close associates, they already pled guilty to both securities fraud and commodities fraud and wire fraud and money laundering. And I forget what else, but there was like six or seven charges. So that there was plenty to charge them with for their existing conduct. So I don't think any new laws... Like I know Elizabeth Warren put out some big bill a few weeks after after that all, all that FTX stuff came to light, but it wasn't going to address you know anything. Like the only things that that are going to help people there are showing proof of reserves or proof like accounting statements that are actually trustworthy. And I mean, what FTX was doing, if if there were any additional disclosure requirements made on centralized exchanges, he likely would have been lying on those anyway. So it wouldn't have made much difference. But I think one thing that that, you know, would make sense after after everything that happened there would be to put a little a little or a lot more requirements on exchanges to to show that they are keeping assets segregated into the customer's accounts. Um, if there's some some way to prove that I know the proof of reserves calculation, like right after, you know, all the different exchanges started showing like, here's our assets, we've got, you know, everyone covered, but that doesn't incorporate if they have these giant loans out against their equity. Like for, you know, for example, if Binance had sold, I don't want to pick on Binance. I like Binance. I hope they're solvent and, you know, fine. But uh, if, you know, the, the FUD or whatever, maybe it's not FUD. I don't know. But the, the fear is that Binance had had several, you know, millions of dollars that it owes other people that, you know, okay, it has the money in its account right now, but that's not really its money. It's someone else's money and they could call it back at any time, at Mm -hmm. which point finance would have to send customer deposits to some other place. And if all of its customers tried to withdraw at the same time, it wouldn't have enough there. But Binance claims that it has everyone's, you know, money backed up. 
Then we saw crypto.com and gate.io, two other exchanges during the time when everyone was doing the proof of reserves, they sent like 230 million Ethereum back and forth. So it's like, they said it was an accident, but, uh, you know, that's a pretty big accident. Um, so were they just, you know, borrowing money to show that they had a reserve, but it wasn't really their reserve, in which case the exercises is pretty meaningless. Um, so, so you're thinking they like, they didn't have sufficient, they may not have had sufficient reserves. So they borrowed money to make it look like they did and then sent it back when that uh, test. Yeah. Was, after was taking a screenshot. Yeah. You know, they say, look, oh, we've got sense. all this money and then send it back. And then that the next exchange says, look, we've got all this money, but it's the exact same money that was uh -huh. backing, you know, uh, all the other ones. So it's, it's a tangled web right now, I think, for the centralized <laughs> exchanges, <laughs> especially. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little ironic that some of the core issues we try to solve with blockchain, like, you know, double counting end up surfacing <laughs> in a totally different way in the same space. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Very much so. Mm -hmm. And That's then the, all those bankruptcies, like the Celsius, um, you know, the, those kind of companies, I think, especially BlockFi, Celsius, Voyager, they really weren't holding any assets. And, and I get like the whole premise behind crypto lending and earning those, um, you know, sweet yields of like 8% a month or something where in traditional finance, you can't get 8% a year. Right, so right. how did we think that these were coming with 8% a month other than they were taking huge risky bets and, uh, it, telling people that that they weren't taking on the level of risk that they were. But now there's one kind of novel thing coming out of the Celsius case uh, just last week. It looks like they're going to make a bankruptcy token. And at first, when I looked at it, I thought there's no way that's going to fly because there's the 50 <laughs> state regulators that are going to say, you know, this is money transmission in our state. And mm -hmm. then there's the SEC that's going to say you can't distribute a token without registering it as a security first. And then there's um, the F the FinCEN that says if you're an administering a token, you need to register with us. So it's like this, you know, how are they going to do that? But this one lawyer, Drew Hinkies, in in a Telegram chat, I'm in the hardcore crypto law. He showed there is a special. Um, rule in the in the bankruptcy you know laws that that means they actually probably can do that and you know maybe it'll end up working out for the the depositors we'll see but uh yeah. it'll be it is something interesting to watch it's just you know early conversations about it right now but mm -hmm. yeah that's interesting i'd never i'm gonna have to look into that a little more that that sounds like yeah because if i were to if that were to come across my screen i'd be asking if that was a joke <laughs> you know well <laughs> you know what's funny about it is the lawyers for celsius are making like four million dollars a month kind of thing it's it's crazy how much they're making well apparently according to tiffany fong who's been i don't know if you've been following the celsius case too closely but she's just she had about 200 grand locked on the platform and just started reporting on it making videos like really mm. following it closely and she's amassed a huge following and then she ended up getting close to FTX too and getting like she broke one of the first interviews with him and mm -hmm. she went and saw him at his house when he was on house arrest. But anyway, she just published a Patreon article yesterday that 
she got leaked some uh, bids from Binance, Cumberland Mining. Um, who else was it? There were four big companies, Gen uh, Galaxy Digital, um, you know, big names that were trying to buy the Celsius assets. And apparently the Kirkland and Ellis lawyers said, oh, none of those bids were compelling. We want to move forward with this bankruptcy token. But, you know, who's going to make all the money creating this novel legal structure that has to navigate the most complicated, uh, you know, rules versus just mm. selling off the assets, you know, then it's done and yeah. over with. But, uh, you know, so the lawyers in these bankruptcies, it's, it's, they're making like $2,000 an hour to, to work on it. So. <laughs> well, it sounds like we'll have uh plenty to follow up with you on maybe if we uh, do this again later in the year. So yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we ran at the clock today, Sasha, but man, you provided a ton of insights. Thanks so much for yeah. being here. If, uh, if someone wants to get in touch with you and follow up, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, probably by email, Sasha at hotter.law or, you know, there's my, on my website, hotter.law, there's like a contact now button. So yeah, awesome. I'm always looking for new clients. So if you're working in this space, you know, I'd, I'd really love to work with you. <laughs> okay. Perfect. Hotter.law. All right. Thank you. Uh, one, one last, uh, quick thing before we go, I just wanted to let you all know that um, like we mentioned last time, we're continuing to build out our Web3 infrastructure at Blockspaces. And we added, we just added two new protocols, uh, Bitcoin and Arbitrum. And we've got free endpoints for those. So if you're thinking about uh, building on either of those two protocols, well, we've got, I think, 30, 37 now. It's hard for me to keep keep count. We keep adding them so quickly. But um, check that out. Go to Blockspaces.com. You'll find it pretty quickly um, on our menu. So um, last thing. Um, when our webinar ends today, you'll see a quick prompt for a survey. Uh, if you can share your feedback, that helps us make these uh, sessions better. We'd love to hear who you'd like to hear as a future guest as well. So please feel free to drop those uh, suggestions in there. But uh, that's all for today. Thank you, Sasha, for being with us. It was a real pleasure having you. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having yeah. me. Yeah. Thank, you. thank you all for being here. We will see you all next time. Thanks for listening to Block Spaces Live. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you listen. And if this show helped you on your path to building with blockchain, then we'd be thrilled if you left us a review while you're there. And remember to join our live recordings, just head to blockspaces.com slash podcast, put in your email, and we'll send you an invite. See you next time.